Welcome to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. How are you doing? How are you feeling? The family caregiver is an at-risk individual. I firmly believe this. They are carrying the challenges for at least two people, themselves and at least one other person they're caring for. Some caregivers take care of multiple people. Are you one of those? If you are, you're in the right place. And we're glad that you are with us. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. If you want to learn more about the program, you can go out to our website and there's a little form you fill out. You can send me a comment, question, whatever's on your heart. And let me know how I can respond to wherever you are. This is the time and this is the program for all of us as family caregivers to come together and compare notes and draw strength from each other. What can we learn from each other through this process? And we're not going to solve it, and that's not the goal. The goal becomes for us as caregivers is, can we live peacefully when everything else is not? Can we live a little more calmly, a little healthier, and dare I say it, a little more joyful? And I believe we can, but it takes work, and it takes comparing notes with others, whether it's uh, through a support group, whether through a program like this, fellow caregivers, pastor, clergy, your doctor, somebody else besides your own voice that's giving you some objective counsel. And ultimately, the Word of God, which, you know, that Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Kind of the whole point is to not lean on our understanding, but to lean on His. And He built us so that we're not alone, that we're in community, and that community can help us learn and grow, where you can learn and appropriate in your own life. You know, hey, that's working for them. Let me try it for myself. But all too often, we caregivers, we just toil along in isolation, and and we feel so cut off from everyone else. Nobody's going to possibly understand what we're going through, or or I feel embarrassed, or or I don't know what to, I don't even. Sometimes we don't even know what to ask, and that's. All of those things are completely normal, but let's invade that normal with some clarity. Let's dig into our circumstances as caregivers and see what's really causing us the angst. And all too often, we blame it on the behaviors or the condition of a loved one. Well, if they weren't like this, then we could be, and that's not really what's going on. Because if it wasn't their situation or their circumstance or their behavior, it'd be something else. There's always something to, to torque us and to get us agitated and angst-driven. The question is, how are we going to deal with it? How do we respond to it? Are we reacting all the time or are we responding all the time? And I, have you ever watched the teams that get into the two-minute offense or the no-huddle offense when the clock is running and they are jumping really quick to the line of scrimmage, moving the ball fast and trying to catch the defense off guard and and move this ball down the field as fast as they can because the clock is the enemy. You know, I understand that. I understand the place it has. And and I used to think, you know, why don't they do this all the time? Why don't they just keep going and, and, and keep pushing on offense? Well, I'm not a football coach, so I can't tell you why. But I can posit why I think they might because it's exhausting. And at some point, you have to sit down and have a clear plan. You have to have a clear path of 
of what does forward advancement look like? And we as caregivers, I think, are playing one-minute offense, you know, no-huddle offense all the time. And we're having to make up stuff on the fly, and it's hard to have some type of cohesive strategy of where we're going. What does that look like for you? How do you plan for your health? How do you plan for your business? What do you do for meals? How do you plan to clean the house or do laundry? When do you do that? These are all legitimate issues that face so many caregivers. A lot of people think, well, you got all the medical stuff in the pharmacy. Yeah, that's true. I got a lot of that at my house. I'm, I'm at the pharmacist on a regular basis and doctors and so forth. But is that really where the battle is? Is it time management? Is it just the constant interruption of stuff, the stop-and-go traffic? Don't you hate being in traffic when it's just stop-and-go, stop-and-go, stop-and-go? When we lived in Nashville, it was like that for us just increasingly. That's one of the thing, reasons I left Nashville and moved to Montana. You know, sometimes we will have traffic out here. We, they, when they move cattle up here into the forest, when we're trying to get down to the main road, we sometimes have to stop for the cattle drive. But be honest. How many of you all would love to just watch a cattle drive? You know, I mean, <laughs> it is kind of cool. But stop and go traffic in a city, and if you've ever spent any time in, in major urban areas like Atlanta and all that, where there's just, and God help those poor folks out in Los Angeles. Man, it's just nuts. And it's hard on the car, it's hard on your nerves. You just, you're just, it's frustrating, but that's that's kind of our life as caregivers, isn't it? Stop and go, stop and go, stop and go. And you never really get to, uh, how many of you all can drive a stick shift? In, in a stick shift car, you, when you have five gears and you put it in fifth gear and you just cruise on down the road, there's just, there's nothing quite like it, you know? But it seems like we, we don't, we don't get out there very much in fifth gear. And we end up moving at a pace that is very taxing to us. It's, it's stressful to go slower than you want to and slower than you're built to go. And yet, can we be at peace with that pace? Are you at peace with the pace? Can you find ways to move your body and your mind and your heart while serving as a caregiver. And, and I suggest to you that we have to. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I'll tell you some of the things it looks like for me. For me, when I get on this program, I'm moving at my pace. I'm speaking and my mind is working and I'm thinking about these things and I'm sharing them with you. When I go out and speak in public, get out on stage or on television or whatever, that's me moving at my pace. And it's not work for me to do that. It's not work for me to go to the piano. And I get to move at my pace. And I love getting there to, in the studio and doing stuff with Gracie because musically, we just become so synced. And it's, it's, it's really wonderful to experience. And I love that we have that. The other day, um, I was out there, and, and we started. We, <laughs> spring came a little late in Montana. We had snow <laughs> last week, three inches of snow, and uh, the, the second week of May. Um, but we're way up in the Rockies. But now it's it seems to be here, 
And I was out there with just with the horses and just hanging out. I was feeding them the other night, and it was one of those nights where you the, the sunlight is streaming through the trees, and and the, the horses are swishing their tails, and they're nuzzling up with you. And it's just I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe unless you've done it how meaningful that is. I'm not moving fast, but my heart is engaged with all of my senses and I'm just being learning to be at peace. I'm putting it in fifth gear. If you notice when you're in fifth gear, the RPMs are roughly about 2.3 to 2.5. So there's a place you can get to where you're not just running hot all the time. And I think that lines up with scripture. I mean, look at Ecclesiastes 5.18. Even so, I have noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. Ecclesiastes 8.15. So I recommend having fun because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along the way with all the hard work God gives them under the sun. You know, we can be happy as caregivers, even while working hard. That's what it says. What's your fifth gear? What helps you bring those RPMs down? We don't have to stay in a no-huddle offense all the time. We can take a moment to kind of think this through and have a good time along the way. We can find pockets of joy. Hey, we got a very special guest for the rest of the show here. It's an author that you're going to love who's doing it. It's an amazing book. Don't go away. we got more to come. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. In a world where no one can tell us no, to this day, every human being born on this planet is the product of a male and a female. That's the way God set it up. God created us in His image. A place where Facebook and YouTube have no control. I think the command in Scripture relative to men and women is not mainly women sit down, but men stand up, act like men, lead as you're supposed to. A place where we can no longer be canceled. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And if you understand that rightly, then everything else simply falls into place. The American Family Association presents the AFA streaming platform. Just visit streaming.afa.net for the latest films, documentaries, and AFA original productions. You'll even find videos from some of your favorite talk shows. All you have to do is create a free account at streaming.afa.net. This is Zach Williams. I believe that with God, all things are possible, even freedom from addiction. I would get so lost in the drugs that I would have to commit crimes to go get more drugs, and I kept going to jail. I went to court, and I went and told the judge, make everyone's job easier. Give me 90 months. And he was like, you know what? This isn't working. You've done seven years all together. What are your thoughts on Teen Challenge? So when I got to Teen Challenge, I chose to put my faith in Jesus and God, and I'm saved. It's a beautiful thing to understand that someone died for me. Someone didn't just see me as a kid that was born in prison and sold drugs and overdosed, and Jesus doesn't see me like that. Once I got a taste of that. It's like, okay, now I'm not going to let anything get in the way of me and my relationship with Christ. You can live the life you were meant to live, free from addiction and full of hope. Even if you're not struggling with addiction yourself, you may know a teen or an adult who is. Adult and Teen Challenge can help. Call 1-855-END-ADDICTION or visit teenchallengeusa.org. You're listening to American Family Radio.
Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. And we're so glad that you're with us. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. If you want to learn more about the program, be on the program. Send us a note through the website, and we'll call you if you want to from the program. Whatever's on your heart, send it to us. Let us know what you're thinking about, what's going on with you. You know, you've heard me on this program a lot talk about the importance of doing things as you care give, that you don't put your life on hold, that you're constantly advancing who you are as a person, whether it's um, whatever you love, music, gardening, your work, whatever. You don't put your life on hold. You may have to be creative and you may have to suspend a few things, and that's okay, but you don't put you on hold. And I'm always encouraging people to find out what makes their heart sing, what they enjoy doing. And then I like to find interesting stories of people who have done just that and are living it and just doing it. And that brings me to my guest today. He is an award-winning author named Ethan Burroughs. And he's got a book that he published in 2021 called Messianic Reveal. And the second one has just come out. It's called Writ Reveal. He's got a third one that's going to come out next year. It's part of a trilogy. And we went to the same high school, same small town in South Carolina, so I thought I'd invite him on. It's a little bit of a departure from what I normally do, but it's, I've, I've read the books. They're fascinating books. And so I wanted to have him on the program. <clears throat> Since we both are from South Carolina, You you know, we can understand each other, and we don't need subtitles for each other. No. <laughs> but I am glad to have him here with us. Uh, Ethan, welcome to the program. Peter, it's good to be here. I'm really delighted to be on your show. Well, this book, you sent me um, you sent me copies of this book, and I poured through them and read them, just gripping stories. And they're nonfiction books. They're novels. Uh, that his, they're, they're thriller, action, spy, all of the above. But you have a different twist on this, and this is why I felt like it was interesting, and I like to read and I love books like this and I like history, this book brings something different. You have a very extensive background overseas in the Middle East, um, things in, um, well, some things we can't talk about, (laughs) and so we won't talk about them, but a very extensive background, and you decided to use that background and write a story, more than just a fun story and tale and and a spy novel, you also had some things you wanted to accomplish in this. So give us a little bit of the background of what brought you to even write this book, these series of books. Well, uh, thank you, Peter. That's a great intro, and I'm really excited to be here. Um, as you referenced, you know, some people, you know, put have their lives on hold. My life has been on hold on for about <laughs> 25 years. I, I've uh, spent, you know, I, I'm I'm former military. I worked in military intelligence uh, as an Arabic linguist uh, back in the 90s. And then uh, and that opened up a lot of doors for me as a civilian. Uh, and I spent uh, some serious time living, traveling and raising my family in the Middle East from countries ranging from Saudi Arabia to Jordan to Tunisia, Kuwait. Uh, and then also I spent a lot of time in Israel, the Palestinian territories, Syria before the war broke out there and even even some uh, some tough time in Iraq. Um, and that's really fed a sense of wonder in, in me, uh, kind of a wonder in like, what is the connection? What is the connection that we as Americans have to the region, the region that gave us our faith, the reason 
the, the region that we've invested so much political capital in over the last 70, 80 years. Uh, and in the, in the last few decades, a lot of um, blood and treasure has gone into this region through wars and, and through um, uh, you know, uh, our engagement. And I've had the great, great pleasure of, of being in the region and meeting with emirs and kings and influential businessmen and women and entrepreneurs and Islamic clerics, Christian clerics, uh, Jewish clerics, uh, and, and uh, even some refugees. I've spent time in refugee, refugee camps and things like that. You know, they change your heart. They change your mind. They change who you are once you've seen how the other side lives. And when you've seen how, seen what the impact, whether it's positive or negative, uh, of U.S. policy on, on people in, in, in various part, uh, hotspots in the world. And, uh, and I've even have, I have the distinction of having met a terrorist I didn't know it at the time. If if I if I'd known that three days later the young man I met in Iraq would blow himself up and kills I think four Iraqi soldiers, I, you know I I would have loved to go back in time and and say something to him to change his mind. I didn't. Um, but all of that, my experiences, my expertise, my my engagements, my interviews that are with hundreds of people, the people I've had in my homes, or people uh, with whom I've dined with in their homes, you know, breaking bread is is a real thing in the Middle East. And and uh, all that fed into kind of, again, a sense of wonder. And I really wanted to kind of understand this, this uh, you know, the, the political dy- dynamic that we, in, that we have in the Middle East, but also uh, where the intersection of faith and politics is with religion and where, where, where you know, religion and politics actually, uh, you know, cause the greatest friction. Well, one of the things is I, got it dug through your books as I was stunned by the the scope of history that you covered in in these books and I haven't read your third one yet that comes out when does that come out I'm hoping it'll be released in the spring early spring of of next year of 2023 okay. it's called Babylon well, Reveal and got a surprise for you there's prophecy reveal is nearly complete as well so there's the fourth one from trilogy to we have four books in in uh, progress now that's astonishing well you it opened my eyes a lot to the historical um scope of what you're bringing to this this is not just a spy novel that we see kind of um uh, compiled from the outside looking in you're from the inside looking out and looking in mm-hmm. and all at the same time you you've actually lived it and i asked you one point i said what is true and not true in these books because it's a novel and it's meant to be entertaining. It's meant to be a fun story to tell. You wanted to tell a story, but you had some things you wanted to accomplish in this. And I said, well, what's true and what's not? I couldn't figure out what, which part was fiction. And, and I remember, do you remember what you told me? Yep. What did it's you say? The true parts. It's the true parts that are the most terrifying. And, and, and they are, I mean, it's like, yep. wow. And, and I didn't know this, but <laughs> you, you um you dug into stuff that that nobody's ever written about at least not anybody from the west and i think that was kind of your point wasn't it that's exactly right um i mean i i do you know my my protagonist in the book clayton haley uh i write him with a sense of wonder that like the connecticut yankee must have had in the proverbial you know court of king arthur um but what I do is I take Clayton Haley uh, back through some history, and in the first book, some fairly recent history, and the second book, some ancient history. 
Um, and the third book, even more ancient history, that's another conversation for another day. But one of the things that, that came to me as I started doing some research, and I did not intend to sit down and write a novel. I'd never written a novel before. What I intended to do was kind of build a, chron a chronology that I could share with my children about you know, the, the, the very region that they grew up in. Um, uh, but as I started with dates, I, I studied history. I went to the University of South Carolina, I studied history, I love history. And I, I just started kind of keeping a, a track of dates, dates that people were familiar with. You know, 1917, 1918, roughly the end of World War I, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and their grip on, on the, the, uh, the greater region for 400 years. And then you, you fast forward to 1948, the establishment of the state of Israel. Then you go to 1967, the, the, the Six-Day War, you know, the, the Munich Olympics in 72, 73, um, you know, and then you go up to 1979 and then and you have the, uh, the ransacking of our, our embassy in Tehran by a bunch of well and let me let me stop you right there because this is what gripped me is that you know we we tend to have a very short memory here in our country i mean it's it's hard for us to remember two years ago much less 200 years ago but in the middle east the, the memory is long and you connected the dots from all of these events in a novel in a fictional work but all the events are real and you connected the dots historically accurate. I mean, it's not like you just made all these things up. All of these things are connected. All of this leads us to where we are as a country and why this is still on the front page of every paper and on the evening news of every evening news is something to do with the Middle East. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. Um, I think that we tend to come up with convenient answers and silos where we, we keep this silo for this issue, this silo for this issue, this silo for another issue, um, and we don't naturally connect them. And I wanted to connect them in this book, I, especially Messianic Reveal. I wanted to understand them. I, you know, I, I'm writing the book, but I felt like I was in the front seat watching this this happen. And, you know, as we get to 19, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, we, you know, I think people have a, a rough understanding of the the Sunni world versus the Shia world when it comes to Islam. I think people have a general understanding that. You know, when you talk about the Arab Muslim world, you're talking about 300 million people. When you're talking about the greater Muslim world, you're talking about 1.5 billion. It's a huge, you know, there are more Muslims outside of the Arab world than there are in the Arab world. Um, and, and, um, and I wanted to connect some things um, really surrounding two signature events. Uh, you know, I just mentioned the, the ransacking of our embassy in Tehran, 1979. Traumatic event for the Americans. And we have neatly packaged that as, you know, and we've had this grudge match with the Iranians ever since 1979. They held our people for 444 days. Well, do, what people don't know is that two weeks late, two weeks after they ransacked our embassy in Tehran, there was a messianic cult. And this is where I get the name, the name of my book, Messianic Reveal, comes from the arrival of a messianic cult led by a guy by the name of Muhammad Abdullah Qahtani and his cousin slash brother-in-law, Juhayman al -Otabi. And they led a cult of former National Guardsmen from Saudi Arabia, and they took over the holiest site of, is of Islam. They took over the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And again, this is important. One and a half billion people prostrate themselves every single day, five times a day, and pray to this place as part of the, the tenets or the pillars of Islam. Okay. And it was bloody. I mean, they held this for two weeks. Uh, the, the Saudi National Guard had to you know, rip them out of there with the help of Pakistani commandos and French commandos who had to hastily convert to Islam because you could not have non-believers on 
the holiest ground of Islam. So they went in, they rousted him out of the, the Vatican of the, the Muslim world, and it was brutal. You had gunfire, machine gunfire, sniper fire, grenades, you had chemical warfare used against uh, this group. Some 500 to 1,500 people died in this melee, this chaos. And um, Well, hold, hold that thought because we were up against a hard break, and this is what set the table for your first book, correct? And, th- and these are all real events that happened. And, and so we're going to talk some more about this. We're talking with Ethan Burroughs. He is the author of Messianic Reveal, Writ Reveal, and soon more to come. We'll be right back. This is Hope for the Curious. Can we trust the Bible? He says, we saw this. And that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks, the important documentary from the American Family Association, is now available to watch for free on AFA's brand new streaming platform. Go to thegodwhospeaks.org to watch this award-winning film today. Thegodwhospeaks.org. Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Christian parents are on the hook today because they have to identify the threats to the value system uh, that's being taught to their children in public schools. And their job is to protect their kids from these influences. Tune in for Family Talk with Dr. James Dobson. Weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. on American Family Radio. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our program. God's blessings to you all. It gives an impetus to share your faith when you think you've got answers to objections that you expect people to bring up. The American Family Studios video series, Intro to God's Revelation, featuring Dr. Richard Howe, shows how God has revealed Himself in nature and His Word, and how we can rightly understand what God has said. These truths are just a part and parcel of the Christian life. It isn't just for the professional clergy. Learn the fundamentals of how to approach and understand the Bible in an age of skepticism. This six-week video curriculum is perfect for your Sunday school class or study group, and it can prepare you to give a defense of God's Word and how He speaks to us in nature. Knowing whether and how God communicates is a safeguard against false claims about God communicating. Intro to God's Revelation, DVDs and workbook are available for purchase at afastore.net or call 877-927-4917. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. I am Peter Rosenberger, and we're glad that you're with us. You can go out to hopeforthecaregiver.com. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. There's a little form there if you want to be a part of the program. You just fill it out. Send me a note. Tell me what's on your mind, what's on your heart. And we'd love to hear from you. That is my wife, Gracie, and Russ Taff from her CD, Resilient. And you can go out to hopeforthecaregiver.com and learn more about that. Get a hold of that CD for yourself. I, again, uh, you've heard me say this often about how important it is to not put your life on hold as a caregiver. And we tend to do this at various times, uh, thinking that, no, we'll do this later, we'll do this later. But sometimes just, you know, we we get a a moment of clarity. We realize, you know what, later is not promised to us. Let's do what we need to do today, right now. And whether it's uh, being a musician or or pursuing this or whatever, 
within reason as you navigate your journey. Uh, my guest today is Ethan Burroughs. He is a novelist. Uh, he's an award-winning novelist. His uh, first two books are already out. The third was coming out next year, and the fourth one will be out several years after that. He and I went uh, from the same town, same high school, and uh, um, he also has parents that are aging and dealing with some very serious realities. I don't share a whole lot of his background simply because um, I don't think we can, <laughs> and, and you'll know more about that as we listen to him talk about these books, and so I'm being a little bit vague on that. But these books bring a great um, scope of history and and a lot of the things that we see plastered in our media every day, but we don't know how to connect those dots. Well, he does, and he's one of the very, very few who've done the kind of work he's done for as long as he's done, and now he's actually taking time to write about it. And I don't know anybody that's done like you've done and written from somebody who's actually lived it. And he was sharing before we went to the break about what was going on in the uh, connecting the, uh, the 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 dots with um, the Tehran, uh, and then they they had the cult that followed. So to take us back into this, and then share a little bit more about how you get into this. We're going to talk about how you wove your faith into these books and everything else. But take us back into that place in, in Tehran. Okay, so yeah, in 1979, you had this this hostile takeover of our embassy by a student uprising led by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who uh, just returned, had his this glorious triumphant return to to Iran from uh, a year and a half, where he lived in Paris, doing collecting political and financial support <laughs> for his his return. Uh, but two weeks later, and this is the footnote that no one seems to know about. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time talking to very smart people, and collectively, no one seems to know a whole lot about this siege of Mecca. It happened two weeks after the the, the takeover uh, in Iran of, of our embassy, um, but this is a brutal, hostile, bloody melee where somewhere between 500 and 1,500 people died violently, and then the surviving militants, terrorists, Messianic cult members, call them what you will, they were taken out by the Saudi authorities to nine different cities around the country summarily beheaded cover up that's it now as i started exploring this story and why no one seems to know much about it i wondered if the two could be connected somehow and peter i'm going to put you on the spot you read my books you know that uh khomeini planned his return to tehran from paris do you know where he was before he was in uh, before paris do you recall before he was in paris i knew he was in paris yes. Wasn't he in the United States? No, no. You're thinking of Tehranjalis, where hundreds of thousands of Iranian exiles live. No, okay. he never came to the States. He was in southern Iraq. And this is what's important for Oh, that's me, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you remember now, yes. He was in southern Iraq, and reads reason important, and I won't go into a lot of details because, you know, this is, well, I want people to write, read the book. But the, 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 he was in southern Iraq, which is the holy, has the holiest sites of Shia Islam, and and this is where it connects to U.S. intervention in the region. And I think it's very important for those of us who have served in the region or who have family members who have gone over and, and you know, given up of their time and in some cases, you know, um, paid the ultimate price uh, for uh, the intervention there. Ayatollah Khomeini spent 12 years in southern Iraq. He was there uh, cohort, you know, in cahoots with the the Shia religious establishment. Most people think the Shia are in Iran. Yes, Iran is a majority Shia country. 
but so is Iraq. And Iraq has the holiest, like the Vatican for the Shia faith is there. And Saddam Hussein could not, uh, who was from the Sunni community, could not have his arch nemesis uh, in a powerful position next door in Iran and and taking with him the fealty and the loyalty of the Shia community in southern Iraq. And so, you know, I think that, for, again, if you want to look at it from the military perspective, we kind of stepped into this, this sectarian conflict that was spread out from Saudi Arabia through Iraq and into Iran um, without knowing a whole lot about that and why that matters and why the, the stronghold of Shia Islam is in southern Iraq. So, now, wait a minute, we, we bolstered up. We bolstered up Saddam Hussein to push him against the Ayatollah Khomeini. That's right. That's right. And, our, and, our and that man, set the our, table for what happened 30-something years later. It's well, still you know, going on. I, well, let me rewind it a little bit. The <laughs> very same, same things that the, the cult members, the Messianic cult members, the, the claims that they, the, that they were demanding when they took over the Vatican of the Islamic world in Mecca, was repeated verbatim by a guy of the name Osama bin Laden in 1989. So the siege of Mecca happened in 1979 when uh, Osama bin Laden starts his Al-Qaeda, the foundation, the, the, the terrorist group that we know as Al-Qaeda or at the South we say Al-Qaeda. Um, when he started that, he was using the exact same terminology and verbiage and rhetoric that, that the, the Messianic cult used 10 years before. And his older half-brother was part of that cult, and that's 100% true. I told you the terrifying well, parts are all I, I know. That's, and as I was reading this, I realized that is that is the the foundation of where you start in this book with all of the stuff that none of us knew. The, the United States remained yeah. clueless about, for the most part, except some people in the intelligence agency, and nobody was really connecting those dots because intelligence during a lot of this time was kind of segmented, Correct. Well, yeah, I, I use the word silo uh, for a reason, and I'm not here to make, you know, to cast aspersions on, uh, you know, uh, how intelligence was collected. But I do know that it's con it's more convenient to compartmentalize things, and I would argue that um, you need a fuller picture if you're going to understand the region and and why it matters to us. Uh, it matters to us because. Uh, you know, uh, our interventions drum up a great deal of antagonism and antipathy toward the United States. And yet, you know, we kind of need some of these countries when it comes to our energy needs. We need some but, of these but countries you think when we about, want them. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, you think about all the the blood and treasure that we have spilled into that region and how many people really know nothing about what's going on. Yeah. And, and we're going because these people in Washington sat around a table and said, we got to do this. And nobody's knowing the history of what's going on with these people, what kind of fight we're stepping into. And, and I look at, you know, I, I think Gracie and I were there at the, at Walter Reed, right at the beginning of the Iraq and Afghanistan war and all that was going on. And we saw all these guys coming back, just, just horrific wounds. And still nobody really knows what, what's going on here. What are we trying to accomplish here? What are we stepping into? And so your book has unpacked all of this. Yes, you've said it as a spy thriller novel, but the, the way you've done this is what's been so breathtaking for me because I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you? It's like every, there's a point where I started turning pages and saying, are you kidding me? Every page. 
And, and, and then that's when I called you. I said, which part of this is true? <laughs> and, and that's when I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah. it, it was, and then I love how you, you made this protagonist, just this, you know, a, a guy with strong Christian faith from South Carolina, um, very much kind of like what you grew up doing. And you were thrust into this and trying to learn this and keep up with this the whole time. And it's, you know, it's, 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 now there are parts of the book that are fairly violent. Um, yes. <laughs> well, but I, I can say I've, I've certainly been targeted myself. I've had an office blown up. I've had to, and I, I'm sorry to say this on, on the air, but I've had to clean up body parts. Um, you know, some of the things that we've seen and been a part of is, has not been pretty. Um, and, and, you know, our soldiers are coming back and, you know, I have family members, you have family members, I'm sure, who have served over in places like that. Um, you know, uh, they've come back and, you know, and you, you referenced, you know, my, uh, my own Christian background and, and my protagonist, pro my books are not overtly Christian. They're not, you know, I, I, I think if I want to do an honest approach of, of, uh, to the intersection of faith and politics, I needed to make sure I needed to establish some bona fides. And, and so I, I chose to have my character his is a, a practicing Christian and he finds himself in the heartland of Islam. Yeah, it's like you just so, kind of threw him into it. Yes. And and he's got to play catch up with things that he just had no idea. And it and it tests his faith, but he comes through it. I mean, he's he's not he's not broken in this. He doesn't he doesn't walk away from it. It actually deepens his understanding on some things. And I was really impressed by the, the way the character developed through this because it gave him insight that he would, he did, he just didn't have. Well, you know, I think he may have started like so many of us where, you know, uh, the, uh, based on the assumption there's good and evil. And, and I'm hoping I'm not testing your theology or even my own or any of your listeners. Um, I, I would say that it, that's a convenient label, good and evil, because at the other end, you find he finds good people, good people whose faiths, which differ from his, but good people whose faiths are exploited by by uh, despotic rulers or or you know the spoilers, the 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 you know the the villains in the book. And again, the villains I use are based on real people. Well, and I think we see that in pretty much everywhere. There are always people that are manipulated by these things, and that's a tragedy that we as Christians hang our heads in shame because we've seen it. Um, and some of the great people of our faith have gone to a wooden stake and were burned at the stake because of people who said they were doing this in the name of God. Our Savior was crucified in the name of God. So there, there's a lengthy history it's the human condition of people being manipulated by religion. I love how you are bringing a whole new component of revealing this to people and showing them things that they never never saw before. We're talking with award-winning author Ethan Burroughs, and he has a series of books he's done, Messianic Reveal, uh, Writ Revealed, and more coming as well, and you're going to want to check these out, ethanburrows.com, ethanburrows.com. We're going to talk more with him when we come back, don't go away. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Peter Rosenberger. Have you ever helped somebody walk for the first time? 
I've had that privilege many times through our organization, Standing with Hope. When my wife, Gracie, gave up both of her legs following this horrible wreck that she had as a teenager, and she tried to save them for years, and it, it just wouldn't work out, and finally she relinquished them and thought, wow, this is it. I mean, I don't have any legs anymore. What can God do with that? And then she had this vision for using prosthetic limbs as a means of sharing the gospel, to put legs on her fellow amputees. And that's what we've been doing now since 2005 with Standing With Hope. We work in the West African country of Ghana, and you can be a part of that through supplies, through supporting team members, through supporting the work that we're doing over there. You could designate a limb. There's all kinds of ways that you could be a part of giving the gift that keeps on walking at standingwithhope.com. Would you take a moment to go out to standingwithhope.com and see how you can give they go walking and leaping and praising God. You can be a part of that at standingwithhope.com. Here's Pastor Erwin Lutzer from the American Family Studios documentary, The God Who Speaks. You know, so often I see even in evangelical circles where you have a great deal of emphasis on human wisdom. Now that human wisdom sometimes is right. For example, human wisdom can diagnose certain problems that people have psychologically and so forth. The problem is human wisdom does not have an answer to the deep needs of the soul. What we need to do is to get back to the Bible. Do we begin to think in human terms as to how problems can be solved? Or do we come to God seeking His wisdom so that the answers that we have for human need and human conflict are truly biblical. Visit thegodwhospeaks.org. Welcome back to the program. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. Glad that you are with us, hopeforthecaregiver.com. And as I said, sometimes I like to talk to caregivers who are doing things in the midst of their caregiving, things that I think are extraordinary, such as the case with my guest today, Ethan Burroughs, ethanburroughs.com. We've known each other forever from the same state, same high school. And he has uh, several, a series of books that he's done that are just amazing thriller novels, but there's more to it than that. And of course, he's going through some caregiving issues of his own. I have to be a bit vague on some of these things, and you'll just have to trust me on it, but I can't share a lot of who he is and his family, and so I'm being a bit vague, but he's there. I want to depart just a hair before we get back into more of your stuff. As a novelist, I'm a writer. I mean, I've written several books, but my, my stuff's not uh, fiction. I mean, and, and I, I, I'm not doing that. You're very creative in what you've done. And one of the things I've encouraged people on this program to do is really explore whatever can give, you know, release to the whatever's going on in their soul. Caregiving can be a pressure cooker, and, and, and it causes a lot of deep feelings, and, and, and it feels kind of claustrophobic in your heart. And I've encouraged people to find those things that give that release. You found you know, something in your heart that it expresses this through writing these great stories. What what advice would you give to people who want to write, who feel like they have a story they want to tell, they're not sure how to go about it or where to even start? What advice would you give? Well, let me first say I've read all of your books as well. And um, 
I think this, the thing that sticks out to me from your books is one is how sadly real they are. And, uh, and I know you write from a great deal of pain, uh, but they're also pretty funny. Uh, and I think you have a, uh, you and Mr. T share a PhD in pain and suffering. And, uh, and I, I think that and it comes out in your, <laughs> uh, and I think, and, and I, and I, I think you will admit is probably a coping mechanism, but whatever it takes, you know, right. Yeah. You, you, uh, you, you have to, you have to grab onto that hope, uh, and, uh, that you're always standing with. Right. Um, so, uh, but what the advice, you know, if people are thinking about writing, I'd, I'd, I'd first start with your motives. One, if you're writing to be rich and famous, um, don't, you know, try out for the NBA instead. If you if you write because you have a story, I write because I have a story. I have a wonderful story. It's compelling. I can't not write. Um, and I love sharing uh, this, this story with people. I like to see their reactions. Um, and, and I'd say that, you know, if you have a story, you need to write, you just carve out some time, turn off Netflix and, and write. Um, if, uh, but don't do it for the wrong reasons. Don't do it so you can be a role model. We have enough role models. You either write because you have a compelling story, uh, or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be writing, whatever, whatever helps you communicate your mes message. If you're trying to bolster and build up a community or connect with people, inform people like you do, Peter, you're, you know, you do, there's an element of entertaining. But there's also it's a very a small element, element at times. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that's a very small element. Yeah, but I mean, there's not a lot of fun in your background. I mean, no. what, your expertise does not lend itself to a lot of entertainment value and a lot of fun. You, yeah, uh, you know, I, I know you've gone through some dark days, um, but you take that that darkness and you use it to transitive verb inform people and i think that that's what's key you have a story to tell and you can't not tell it well i had a in fact i was talking to a lady today that uh her son just died after she'd been taking care of him for 36 years he had a lot of issues going on in his life and um significant disabilities um developmental he was blind a lot of things and she was talking about writing his story and i thought well i asked her i said well how about writing your story because yeah. I think that would be something that people wanted because we all have a story in us. And I think it's so easy to write about somebody else's story, but this is in, in many respects, this book series of books, he's read, this is your story. This is what you want to, like you said, in the first block, uh, you wanted to pass on to your children of understanding why they were raised in this environment, what this means, how this all fits. And it's your story. And I think that for all of the listeners to this program, all my fellow caregivers, you know, you have a story and like, I love what you said. Don't try to do this to write a, a hit novel and become rich and famous as a writer. Do it because it's authentic to who you are. Yeah. And if there's one thing I've come to treasure about your books, it's, it's uh, that it is authentic. They're, they're real. And, and the way you describe the people, you help people get to know, not like you did with our, our mutual missionary friends over there, helping them, integrate into that community so that they can better connect and relate. It's, it's so important not to just parachute in and start just um, yelling at people and preaching at people versus just getting to know them. And this is what you've done in your entire career. You've gotten to know people. You've spent times on the streets and the bazaars and, and all these things you do. What is something about the Middle East that you would like people to know that they may not know here in the West? 
I would say just right off that they, the, the people of the Middle East want the same things we want. They want, you know, good, stable, they want prosperity. They want a good, stable environment to raise their children and, you know, raise their families. They want educational opportunities for their sons and their daughters. Um, and, and they want, you know, they, they want a voice in their community. Uh, exactly the same things that we want. Exactly the same things. They just have um, a great many impediments that we don't have. And some of those are governmental. Many of those are cultural. Many of those are religious. And, um, and, and that's one, one of the things, if you'll, if you'll allow me, uh, writ reveal, I took it in a different direction. While I was studying and researching for Messianic Reveal, I, I came across a study in 1972 by German scientists in Yemen, and, and they basically had old parchments, old Quranic parchments that were written. This was bits of the Quran, and they, they determined that these bits of the Quran were written before Muhammad had his visions from the angel Gabriel, or Jibril, as they say in Arabic. By the way, that could get you in a lot of trouble for saying that, can it? Absolutely. It and got that's why I have invited. to be kind of vague about some things with you. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I don't shy away from talking, going right to the heart of the matter. Um, but I want to be very careful. I'm going to be very clear. I do not say anything in any of my books that denigrate the people of any faith. I'm not out to do that. I'm not out to say this, this faith is right. This faith is wrong. I mean, uh, certainly I think, uh, Presbyterians have something over the Episcopalians, um, and you know, uh, but I'm not going to say I'm not going to put one faith over another. I don't do that. I do not attack faith. I do not attack people. I attack the people who distort and twist and manipulate the faith of others. That is that is what I do in these books, and I do it head on, absolutely. And I've had Muslim friends read my books to verify that I don't do anything that outright. In fact, they come back and they say, "I've learned so much about my faith and my history." And wow. I tell you what, I find that the highest compliment when I've had Muslim friends come back to me and say, I learned so much about my faith and my history because so much of it is whitewashed. And there are states sometimes in our own communities here in the States, uh, there might be a little bit of that too from time to time. Oh, you know, I've seen it, it where we just kind of, we've done this in our, in our own Christian faith. There's a lot of pulpits out there that, that spin things that are not accurate. And, That's and right. people follow along out of sincerity and, and devoutness, but they don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting that Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, go ye therefore in all the world. He didn't say go out there and get everybody saved. He said, go there, share the good news and make disciples, teach them, teach them. Yeah. That's what making disciples, teach them. And, and the fact that, that you're helping people have a greater understanding, you can't just go into people's lives and just start like you said, just start holding them down and preaching at them. You have to learn who they are and speak to them and translate and, and, and communicate with them in a way that both of you can understand. And, and you've given amazing tools in this, uh, in these series of books that you're doing of people, uh, of a culture, of a world that, that the West really has very little understanding of. You're right, but yet that is a culture that gave us our faith, our mathematics, our science, our, you know, there's so much of our enlightenment came from that very region. And one of the things I like to point out, most of my first three books all largely take place in Iraq, and not because I have this deep, well, it's because I have a deep fascination with Iraq, mainly because after Israel, Iraq is the second most mentioned country, or country that we identify under current geography, 
uh, in the Bible. Iraq plays a critical role. Abraham, of course, is from Iraq, and I won't go through all of the prophets who, who come from Iraq, but it's a huge list. And, uh, and I say just very quick, uh, Babylon Revealed, my third book, it explores from a political and secular angle the simple question of why does God hate Babylon so much? And I dare to answer that question and it will blow your mind. I, can't no, I, haven't, I haven't seen this one, by the way. I haven't no, read this I'm, book. I'm holding that to the end of July for, for you. Okay. Well, I, and I, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I, I really have enjoyed this and I've enjoyed the process of, of you that you've shared behind the scenes with me. Uh, of this journey. And I remember when you started doing it and I was thinking, okay, how's this going to work? But it, it's turned out to be so much more. You've had an opportunity now to engage with quite a few people um, in, in this, and you've raised more than a few eyebrows because you're saying things that no one has ever said. Um, not that I've ever seen. I don't see it in the news and I'm a news junkie and so forth. So I am, we're going to have, when this new one comes out, we'll have you back on. We'll talk about this some more. I think it's just a fascinating journey into someone who's not putting their life on hold, doing it right now. And, um, and I want you to know, Ethan, how much I appreciate you taking the time on this today. Well, Peter, I want to thank you, uh, one, uh, you know, for having me on, on, on the air, but also for what you're doing. I know you're inspiring, you're touching the lives of, of thousands, literally tens of thousands of people on a regular basis. And, uh, and I just, uh, as someone who's been touched, who's followed you, who's read your books, who's listened to your uh, broadcast, I really appreciate it. You bet. You're quite welcome. EthanBurrows.com, B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H-S, EthanBurrows.com. Get a copy of this book. Give it to a friend. It's a great gift. This is Peter Rosenberger. We'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.